0: Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. This week, we've got a great conversation with the amazing Ian Rankin. Before we start, I want to tell you about a way you can find out more about what I'm reading, what I'm writing and a place to join me for some book chat. Lots of you have already found me at the Creative Confidence Clinic. It's a space where I'm sharing essays, book recommendations and reading and writing tips and tricks. It's where you can be the first to find out about my new books, projects and events that I'm hosting. Go to creativeconfidenceclinic.substack.com for more information. Now to our guest. It's another icon, Rebus creator, literary superstar and fellow Jilly Cooper fan, Ian Rankin. We're celebrating Ian's brand new standalone Amazon originals book, The Rise, which is out on the 1st of November. We talked about Jillie, obviously, and Muriel Spark, bumpy starts, Scotland in fiction, ghosts, and Ian's appearance in Potbridge. I'd love to start with Muriel Spark, uh, but yeah, I'd love to hear more about when you first started reading her and what it is about their stories that you love.
1: Um, well, I read the Prime of Miss Jean Brodie uh, for fun when I was quite young. I would have been in my teens, uh, but that was the only book of hers that I had read. Um, And I think I only read it because it was set in Edinburgh, and I thought I should read this. But also, I'd seen the film and I loved the film, and it's possible that I saw the film before I read the book, which was often the case when I was young. I would sort of, the, the books that I read were often books of films that I wasn't allowed to see or films that I had seen. Anyway, I got to university, studied American literature, and then decided that I did not want to leave and go into the cold, hard world outside. And Edinburgh University said, well, you won't get funding to do a PhD on an American novel. Uh, And the lecturer that I was talking to said, why don't you do something on Muriel Spark? There's not much about her. Um, So it was venal. It was venal because quite early on, I decided that although I was going to get three years of funding, I was going to use that three years of full-time funding to become a writer. I thought that's what Muriel would want. She wouldn't want me to write an unreadable thesis that would moulder away in a university library, unloved and unread. So I started reading her books, and I just loved them. Um, they're they're on the surface they can be um, light and airy and comical, but just underneath the surface they're incredibly dark, um, as is the best Scottish literature. And she was my gateway drug to a lot of gothic Scottish fiction. Which eventually led me to write the kinds of books that I write.
0: I do think that she is underread. And as you say, that mix of the light and the dark is so thrilling. But I remember loving the hot House by the East River and just also thinking, but what is this? What is she doing? I don't know where I am. I feel totally disoriented.
1: Yeah, they, they reissued hot House by the East River recently and I wrote the introduction for it. And it's a tough book. It's a hard book to understand. You're not quite sure what's going on, who's real, who's not real, what's happening here. A lot of it is based, we now know, I didn't know this when I was doing my PhD because there was so little about Muriel Spark's life, but some of it is based on her experiences during the war. When she actually worked with German prisoners of war and tried to turn them and make them into spies or make them into sources of information for the Allied um, forces, so uh, yes, yeah, an extraordinary book and um, and also her her uh, it's a very experimental book, and a lot of her books are. She was influenced by the Nouveau Roman. She was a big fan of Alain Robbe Grillet. I mean, who the hell reads that these days? Um, She was very European in her outlook. She lived in Europe. She didn't live in the United Kingdom for most of her life. Um, uh, And if you read Miss Jean Brodie, you get a sense of the kind of writer you're going to get. But every book is different from the book that went before and the book that comes after. So it's very hard to get a take on her, except that she is a very dark, satirical writer. And she's also written one of the most extraordinary crime novels of all time, the Driver's Seat.
0: I've never read The Driver's Seat.
1: Oh, I'm not going to spoil it for you. Don't see the movie. Uh, the movie that was made with Elizabeth Taylor is a bit of a mess, um, even though it was just reissued uh, on DVD recently. But the book is, is I think it's under 100 pages long, and it turns the crime novel, the mystery novel, on its head. So, And it's a dark. It's the darkest book she ever wrote. So uh, well worth investigating. But Miss Jean Brodie first... Then maybe Girls of Slender means, if you want a lighter book about being a writer, go to um, Loitering with Intent, which is one of her later books, which is fantastic, and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize.
0: There's a little bit more writing advice in that than in that famous clip of her writing advice, which is like, write your name, write the title, write the book, (laughs) give it to someone to type it That's pretty
1: much it. That's pretty much how she did it. She used to, you know, she wrote all her books in school jotters, school exercise books that she bought from a a shop uh, in Edinburgh. And they were the the same exercise books she used when she was a school kid. And they stopped making them. And she went, this is a disaster. I can no longer write books. And so the bookseller who sold these books, James Thin, um, went off and sourced more. They sourced the right cardboard, they sourced the color, they sourced the right paper, the lines and everything. And they had 40 or 50 printed up specially for her, which they sent to her in Italy so she could continue to write. Uh, and I've actually, in the bowels of the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh, they have a lot of her archive. And I've been able to to touch, to lift up and hold my hand, the exercise books within which she wrote The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie.
0: That's an incredible thing. What a, what a thrill. Sort of a happy, haunted object. But I think that's so interesting as well, to have that kind of talent, but be that almost superstitious about it. Uh, do you have any... Anything in your head like that?
1: I, I can't write when I'm travelling. I need to be at home in my office. And I've got the same desk that I've had since 1986. It's it's like a painter and decorators thing for, for, for doing wallpaper and pasting wallpaper. It's just a very basic desk, which I bought when my wife and I lived in London. Uh, and we bought it in Tottenham Court Road and had to take it back to Tottenham on the Tube, uh, hilariously. It then went with us to France. When we lived in France, it went back to Edinburgh and it's, it's moved around Edinburgh. And, I, you know, that is my desk. I can't imagine writing at any other uh, desk. Um, and, yeah, I do try and cut myself off when I'm writing books. I try and write every day when I'm writing a book. Uh, so it's seven days a week. Um, I am slowing down a little bit, so I do fewer hours a day. I used to write 10, 12 hours a day in a, a sort of dream um where the real world just disappeared uh yeah I've got my pens lined up I've got my chocolate bars lined up I'm mainlining coffee as I write or or fizzy drinks and I don't show the first draft to anybody I don't show the first draft to my wife nobody gets to see it um because it is so rough and ready and the first person who sees my work is always my wife so it'll be the second or third draft before I think it is in a condition for her to see it and then she edits it, basically. So by the time it gets to the publisher, my wife has already been through it with a blue pencil.
0: I think, you know, all the writers would dream of having a um, <laughs> an in-house editor. Although I should admit that um, my husband, producer Dale, is um, quite often I will give him 40,000 words of nonsense, going like, I'm terrible, this is... What, and he's, you know... Well, my I'm wife, its mostly, uh, she,
1: we, I print everything off. I'm kind of belt and braces. So although it's safe to hard disk and it's emailed to myself, it's also printed off at the end of every day. Mm-hmm. And so she goes through the printout, all these A4 sheets, and she writes in the margin. And I'm sitting there terrified. The more she writes, the more I know I've got to change before it can go to the publisher. Um, and it'll be things like you're, you're, you're telling not showing here. You're, this is just an information dump. You need to find a, a more elegant way of doing this. But also my character, Rebus, I gave him a dog. This is a mistake. Never work with children or animals. Having given Rebus a dog, I cannot now bump off the dog, so there's always a dog. And readers get very worried about the dog. Uh, is he feeding the dog? Is he taking it for enough walks, etc. So a lot of the marginalia that my wife puts will be, hey, Rebus is going to talk to this guy. Why doesn't he take the dog with him so he can take the dog for a walk? Or Rebus has been away from home for quite a long time. When is the dog getting fed and walked? So... I've made a rod for my own back, really Daisy, by introducing an animal. That and British readers, you cannot, you cannot bump off a pet. You just can't. You can kill as many people as you want in crime fiction, mm-hmm. but please don't kill an animal.
0: I remember Jill Mansell of all people saying that exact same thing. That the. Um only regret she has about anything she's written is a story and it was you know it was a very sad moment when the dog died and you know i think the dog was sort of appropriately mourned but yeah she got i think hate mail just like never doing that again (laughs) would your wife admit to having a favorite of your novels she
1: teases me my wife teases me that her favorite of my books is my first ever book which was never published um it was a comedy set in a scottish hotel featuring a one-legged schizophrenic librarian and a child with special powers, uh, supernatural powers. And she says she loved it to bits. Anyway, she teases me. I don't know if she's got a favourite amongst the Rebus novels or not. She keeps pretty quiet on that. She reads a lot of crime fiction, so she is the ideal reader for me because she knows if I'm nicking ideas from other people or if other people are doing it better than me and I should maybe then revise.
0: I think that's so interesting, isn't it? And I don't know where, how I feel about this because I'm always... Reading and when I'm writing, I reread because it's safe. It's not going to get in my head too much because I know what I'm expecting. And also, I think rereading is how I learn about technique and how, when I've loved something, what it is they've done. But and also, it's good to know what contemporary people are doing and kind of what's out there and what mm. what people want to read, I guess. But also, you know, that can get in your head. I mean, I suppose the you know the joy of Rebus is you know you've got that character and that voice and someone you know so well who's always going to kind of set the tone to a certain extent
1: no I mean it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing and it's also a curse you know because people expect another Rebus novel and it can't be different it can't be it can't suddenly be a comedy or um, it can't suddenly be in an old folks home etc uh, etc et so
0: you're not going to do Rebus in space
1: <laughs> not going to no and Reginald Hill did once do a Ellen Pasco Pascoe in space which was hilarious um, but only as a kind of long, short story, not as a full-length novel. No, we're not going Rebus doesn't even have a passport. You know, people say, oh, you're going to Greece on holiday. Maybe Rebus will go there. No, he doesn't have a passport. He doesn't travel. He travels as far as the pub. That's that's his, that's his orbit, <laughs> as it were. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, it's lovely to have the, so many words, so many books to write about the, the the arc of one human being's life. I mean, when we first met him, he was 40 years old. He's now nearly 70 Um, And we've watched them slow down and get illnesses and and have to move along and retire and feel a bit useless and try and become involved in the world again. And all of that. that, I've enjoyed the retirement books immensely because this is about a man trying to work out if he can still make a difference in the world or if the world still notices him. Can he force the world to notice him? Um, The police force aren't interested in him anymore. They feel he should have retired and gone to Marbella or something. And he keeps sticking his nose in. Um, And he finds it harder and harder. He can't, you know, if he goes to a police cordon, he doesn't get through the cordon the way he would have done a few years ago. So that's all been really interesting. And it keeps me on my toes. It keeps me interested in him as a character. But I do think the police procedural, which is what these types of book are called, is in trouble just now. Um, partly because I think readers have decided the police are not necessarily the good guys. We've seen stories from all around the world where the police are institutionally corrupt, institutionally racist, c- covering stuff up, etc., etc. So it's very hard to, to get readers to actually um, get on board with, a, with the police officer that you are giving to them. Um, and the high-concept thriller has become a thing. And as you talked about earlier, you know, books like Gone Girl... When it came out, I read it and I tore through it as a reader. And then I had to read it much more slowly as a writer to see how she did what she did. How did she perform this act, that make this book what it is? And I, just, and I looked at all these high-concept thrillers and thought, I couldn't write those. I just can't write them. And I can't write them because I don't know what a book is until I start writing it. So the idea of having a twist prepared in advance is anathema to me. When I start a book... There's usually a murder or some kind of big mystery, but I don't know who did it. I've got no idea what's going on. And as my detectives are finding out what's going on, so I'm just looking over their shoulder, also finding out what's going on. And about two thirds of the way through the first draft, there's usually a light bulb moment when I go, okay, I know what's going on here. I know who did it and I know why they did it. But a lot of writers would find that absolutely terrifying.
0: I think readers know when someone's holding them at arm's length and they're gonna dazzle them and it's like I'm not gonna let on what's happening here. And I think sometimes that can be thrilling and delicious when, you know, whenever you read a book, whenever I read a book, I'm always, you know, happy to suspend my disbelief and be manipulated and go along with whatever is being presented to me. But I do think that thrill of, of discovery um it's the most reliable and reliable narrator, I guess, isn't it? Because they're not omniscient. Mm. And, you, you know, and I think especially with crime, you want to feel... I think readers love those books because you want to, you want to be solving alongside.
1: Yeah, and you want, you want a strong central character, which I've got with Rebus. Quite charismatic, certainly much more charismatic than his creator. Um, and then you've got the city of Edinburgh, <laughs> which itself is an extraordinary character um and edinburgh just seems to me to be perfectly suited for crime fiction because it's a city that on the surface seems very orderly and controlled and rational but scratch the surface and you find a much darker place where terrible things can be happening and sometimes are happening so it's that jekyll and hyde which every city has um but edinburgh just seems to have it in spades uh because it is the city of jekyll and hyde it's the city of robert louis stevenson um, and I've got an inkling that the first draft of Jekyll and Hyde, which his wife persuaded him to burn, I think it might have even been set in Edinburgh. And she thought it was too close to Robert Louis Stevenson's own story, that, she, that he was persuaded to move the action to London to disguise how much of an Edinburgh book it actually was. But in moving the action to London or in setting it in London, it was partly based on a real character, um, Hunter. Hunter. There's a Hunterian Museum in London, which is named after the guy, uh, who was a physician and lived in a lovely house where Leicester Square now is. And his wife would be, in, would be bringing along Joseph Haydn for a dinner party or for a tea party. But at the back of the house was the laboratory where Dr Hunter experimented on corpses and uh, uh, and tried experiments. And if you go to the Hunterian Museum in Blooms. Uh, where is it? Somewhere, somewhere in London. Uh, you'll find some of these experiments that he did. He was fascinated by science, but that took him into some very dark places, including consorting with body snatchers. Um, and so there's a lot of that that's actually happening in Jekyll and Hyde. But it's also, I mean, it's an early book about good and evil. It's why do human beings do terrible things? And the answer in that case is through ingesting drugs, um, and Stevenson himself was taking some pretty heavy drugs at the time because he had a lot of illnesses, and the drugs he was taking, atropine, I think it was, were giving him nightmares. And he said the story came to him in a nightmare. Um, but his wife didn't like it. Fanny, she was, no, this is this is this isn't right. And so she went out of the room, came back, and he said, I've chucked it on the fire, and there it was burning merrily away. So if I could introduce anybody to a dinner party, you know, wow. I would I would have Robert Louis Stevenson there, and I would say to him. What was the first draft? Tell me the first draft. And did you really burn it or did you hide it somewhere? And and it's still waiting. Did
0: their marriage survive that? Because I imagine.
1: She was a very strong character. Their marriage survived that.
0: I was thinking about how, you know, other than Rebus, how little I know sort of fictional Edinburgh. But I'm reading a book at the moment that's set in Edinburgh and I think it's out in October. It's called Hazardous Spirits by Anbar Aslam. And it's set in. The world of sort of mediums and spiritualism and it 's um the heroine her husband who grew up in a children 's home and she's sort of her family think you know she 's married beneath herself, but also the family have had financial disasters and they they 've lost their sort of genteel you know upper middle standing um and her husband can starts to kind of connect with the spirit world and go on like the medium circuit and you know sort of bringing shame upon the family by association, but also she 's now in this sort of very glamorous kind of Evelyn war vile bodies esque you know the sort of the salons and the parties, which is um great thought, but yeah, I love the way she 's written about that period of time, thinking about you know the laboratories and what people were trying to understand about science and how the world worked kind of around the turn of the century when we had so little information and there was such a, an overlap between kind of science and I guess, you know, magic and the occult and the unexplained.
1: Well, that kind of brings us back to Muriel Spark, because one of our early books, I think it was A Bachelors, is about a guy who, who says he can contact the spirit world, I think set in immediately post-war London. Um, and of course, he's a charlatan, um, but also brings us to um, Arthur Conan Doyle, um, Scotland's most famous crime writer and always will be. Um because he was a uh, he was interested in in the spirit world. Um, he believed in fairies at the bottom of the garden. When these photographs emerged, that turned out to be a hoax. He believed in it, uh, and he had mediums trying to contact his son who died, I think, in the Boer War. Um, and he fell up with his best friend Harry Houdini because Harry Houdini, a rationalist, said, "Look, this is nonsense. I can't believe you're being taken in by this." But but Conan Doyle was taken in by it. I mean, he believed in the in the spirit world. Um, I think to the end of his days. Uh, and I mean, absolutely fascinating. So you get that circularity. And in Scottish fiction, it touches on the spirit world. It touches on not only mediums and the occult, uh, but ghosts, a lot of ghosts, great ghost stories, a lot of creepy things happening. Um, uh, and the Gothic, I mean, there's a lot of the, the kind of history of the Scottish novel is the history of the Gothic. Because even before Jacqueline Hyde, there was a book called Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner by James Hogg in which a young religious zealot is persuaded by a charismatic stranger that he is going to go to heaven, whatever he does on earth. Therefore, why doesn't he start a killing spree? So it's one of the first ever serial killer novels. And we're never sure if the charismatic stranger is real, a psychopath, a devil, or a figment of a a young man's imagination.
0: Let's talk about Conan Doyle, because I've read interviews where you've talked about how... Inspiring, you found those novels, and how much they've meant to you as a, you know, for all of your reading life.
1: Well, you know what? I mean, I didn't read much fiction. I certainly didn't read much crime fiction in my early years, but I did watch a lot of TV and films, and it was probably the TV Sherlock Holmes that grabbed me before anything else did. Uh, and the various comic books, whenever there was a Sherlock Holmes-type story in a comic book, everybody who comes after Sherlock Holmes is 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 enthralled to Sherlock Holmes. In some ways, the perfect detective, the ideal detective, someone who is always going to get the, the answers you're looking for. Um, someone who's cleverer than everybody else around them. And a character who is malleable, I mean he keeps being reinvented, even setting the stories in the present day in Sherlock on TV. Um, and, yeah, we, we keep circling around this character of the detective as a, a force for good, but also a damaged individual. Um, he's charismatic, but he is damaged.
0: I also wanted to ask you about A Clockwork Orange. And I think it's in The Guardian where you said that there were lots of kind of you know, exciting sort of pulpy thrillers doing the rounds at school. And when you got hold of A Clockwork Orange, you thought, this is different.
1: Yep, A Clockwork Orange, the paperback, a friend of mine at school, his big brother's edition got passed around. And I still got it because he loaned it to me and I kept it, I didn't give it back. story of my school days is a story of me stealing stuff. Um, <laughs> I've, I've also got my copy of Catch 22 by Joseph Heller is the school's copy. It's actually got Beath High School stamped inside it. I loved it. So I thought I'm not handing that back. Um, Yeah, Clockwork Orange, it was extraordinary because, I mean, I grew up in a pretty rough neighbourhood, went to, you know, it was all working class and it was boot boys, skinheads, Doc Martens, fights, gangs, etc. And so a lot of the books that were being passed around were skinhead books, suedehead books, um, Hells Angels kind of very pulpy thrillers. Mm -hmm. And along comes A Clockwork Orange, which was much more literary. I could tell that it was a very stylish book. It was a a beautifully written book, written by a literary novelist, not written by a hack. And um, I, I would try and write in that style. I just was very enamored of it. And of course I couldn't see the film because the film had been pulled by by Stanley Kubrick who made it because of copycat violence. Um, so in the UK you could not see the film and I wasn't old enough anyway. And the story of my life in books early on is really the story of me reading books that I wasn't allowed to see in the cinema. So it was A Godfather and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and French Connection and The Exorcist um, and A Clockwork Orange. Um, and yeah, it was a very important book to me in some ways. It got me into reading. I must have read it probably a half a dozen or a dozen times over the course of the next few years. Uh, And it got me starting to write. I was trying to write little short stories, little squibs that were in the style of Anthony Burgess.
0: I think it's interesting that we talk about how, you know, that's how sort of visual artists get started, that, you know, people learn how how to paint by imitating the great painters. And... You know, there's lots of pressure on writers to find their own voice, but I think you only do that by loving someone else's voice and trying to understand and trying to copy what that is.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely true. And uh, every writer that I've read, I've probably stolen from something from them at some point. I mean, Muriel Spark, again, in Loitering with Intent, her great novel about becoming a writer, says that writers, you know, we, we just loiter with intent and, and loitering, we're watching you, and we're going to steal your soul, we're going to steal your lines or your characteristics, your, your little facial ticks or your dress sense or whatever. Um, and any stories you tell us or any stories we overhear you telling, we're going to steal those as well. Um, we're magpies, what can I tell you? Um, and so, yeah, the early books, you know, if I, if I read T.S. Eliot at school, I would go away and try and write a poem in the style of T.S. Eliot. Song lyrics, I tried writing song lyrics in the style of bands I, I liked. Um terrible prog rock lyrics for bands that didn't exist. Well, they existed only in my head and on paper. Um, and all of it was just part of trying to become... I didn't have any role models. There were no writers in my in my uh, community. I wasn't introduced to any writers or knew any writers, and I had absolutely no idea how you would go about trying to get published. So in the early days, it was just just reading as much as I could, and then writing as much as I could. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P.
0: We'll be back with Ian soon, but now it's time for my steal of the week. I've chosen Someone at a Distance by Dorothy Whipple. Ellen and Avery are happily married. Until Louise arrives from France, bored, heartbroken and determined to take and break things. Dorothy Whipple is one of my favourite writers and I think her final novel is exquisite. It's a subtly devastating examination of marriage, class and family. It's powerful but never overwrought and completely gripping. Whipple's genius lies in weaving threads of lightness that illuminate the darker, sadder parts of the tale she's telling. This is a book of great gravity but without heaviness. I will never forget it. Someone at a Distance by Dorothy Whipple is published by Persephone and out now. Now back to Ian. Am I right in thinking that you did have a um, a first novel very early on when, were you 90? Was it like right right when you were at university and studying that you were published as a a younger man.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I was doing a PhD on Muriel Spark, which gave me three years of funding, and I'd already had um, a tiny little bit of success with some poems and some short stories. BBC Radio 4 used to have two short stories a day, one morning story, one afternoon story, and they took three or four of mine, I think, and that was a big boost to my ego, to think that I was writing something that people actually were interested in and thought was good. And then I thought, okay, I've got these three years. Instead of doing my PhD, why don't I just use this time to try and write books? So I wrote three books in three years. Um, The first one was never published, Summer Writes, uh, my comedy, which my wife thinks is my best book. Then I wrote a book called The Flood, which was accepted by a very small independent publisher in Edinburgh. And that publication got me an agent. And the agent said, so what else are you working on? I went, well, I've got this book about a cop in Edinburgh called Rebus, um, which is my kind of homage to Jekyll and Hyde by updating the themes of Jekyll and Hyde to contemporary Edinburgh. And that book was taken by a London publisher, Bodley Head, um, and that was it. And, you know, by then I'd left university, uh, was married and was living in London, scratching a living uh, eventually as a journalist. But I thought I'd done it. I thought, right, I've done my one crime novel uh, with this guy Rebus, Um, and I went off and did other things. It took me a while before I came back to Rebus and realised, A, that he was my guy. He was the guy I wanted to write about and, B, that that allowed me to write, to dig deep into the city of Edinburgh and what made it a unique and special place.
0: I love the idea that Rebus was living in your head all that time and kind of growing and maturing and that those stories were... You know, percolating, for want of a better word.
1: Yeah, well, I, yeah, after, that, the, after the first Rebus novel was published, I, wrote, I thought I wanted to be Graham Greene, the Graham Greene of the human factor, or maybe John le Carré. So I wrote a spy novel called Watchmen, which didn't sell many copies. Then I thought, well, I need to make a living, so I better write a big, fat airport thriller, a techno thriller, and that was a book called West Wind. And that didn't sell many copies. And I think my editor scratching his head saying, I like that guy Rebus, why don't you do another one of those? <laughs> And that was that was the the beginning of me writing a series. I didn't realise I was going to write a series until my editor said, "Nothing else you've done has, has, has made any impact at all. Let's go back to the, let's go back to Rebus and see if we can make him work."
0: I loved the story in Potbitch about the the Rebus walking tour. And the um, the many fans going into the pub. I don't. This might. I hope this is true. I think Poppy's more accurate than most of the media. And you very politely sort of held the door for all these kind of you know Rebus ranking superfans who, I think you know, smiled and nodded. But that was. I don't think they they knew they were in the presence of greatness.
1: Well, I mean, yeah. Most people who I mean, really, early on in the series, Rebus worked in a fictional police station and drank in fictional bars, etc., etc. But people in Edinburgh knew where I was talking about. I thought, well, why don't I make Edinburgh a work for me, the real city? So I'll, I'll move him into a real police station and I'll, I'll start mentioning the actual bars that he drinks in. And the Oxford Bar was where I drank as a student. So I thought, and it was full of cops. When I was a student in the 80s, it was full of politicians, journalists and cops. It was perfect. So um, that was where I did my research, basically, for the first book. So I thought, yeah, this is where Rebus drinks. So, I, I you know, I'll, I'll be drinking in the Oxford bar or standing there and Rebus fans will come in from all over the world and sometimes they recognise me and sometimes they don't. And, uh, you know, I've often been standing at the bar with my back to them as they walk in and they take a photograph and they sort of wander around and they walk back out again. Well, we all, everybody standing at the bar has a little chuckle to think that they didn't <laughs> recognise me. And, you know, I wouldn't recognise... If, if John Grisham and Dan Brown... We're sitting in a restaurant, and I walked in i wouldn 't have a clue who they were. I like that I like that that even very well known and, and big selling authors can retain some anonymity because we need that anonymity if we 're going to eavesdrop on other people, loiter with intent, and steal their souls
0: <laughs> it's such a good idea to commit those sort of i don 't know moral crimes isn 't quite right, but you know the um the the, the minor sins of <laughs> the the fuel of the work um, I wanted to ask you about reading crime are you good at working out who done it as a reader do you solve as you go
1: no I'm terrible um, and most crime writers I know are really bad at working out who did it uh I don't know, same with movies, I never I never know what's going on until I get to the end um, and, and you go, oh okay, and I mean that's great, I, I, I don't mind if people work it out for me the the greatness of the crime novel isn't in the revelation of who the killer is it's in everything else, it's what crime tells us about ourselves as human beings about human nature, about the society we live in about the injustices that go on, about the, the gulf between, between those who have and those who have not, about what having nothing can do to you as a human being, how it can crush your spirit and force you to make terrible decisions and do terrible things. Um, all of that, all these huge moral questions, um, and the sense of place, the, the sense that when you read a crime novel, you're getting a, um, a very good education in a city or a country or a culture. Um, you'd find an interesting charismatic characters that you want to spend time with all of that you get from the crime novel I think it's 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 a it's the perfect package and that's why I enjoy reading it if I'm going to go to any country in the world um, on holiday or on tour I will seek out the crime fiction based there because that will give me a good primer in which parts of the country to avoid in the country's history its culture <laughs> uh, its gastronomy I might get tips on where to eat and where to drink I'll get all of that um, from the crime fiction base there.
0: That is a genius suggestion. And I think um, Sky Arts needs to commission this travel (laughs) show from you immediately. I'd love to hear some recent examples of crime books set in cities where you've loved... Is there anywhere where you've thought, I'll read about that because it's set there, and then changed your mind and not gone on the trip?
1: (laughs) Um, I don't think there's anywhere I've not gone on the trip. But certainly, you know, when I used to tour America... I would say, okay, I'm going to New Orleans, I better read some crime fiction set in New Orleans, or I'm going to Los Angeles, I better read some Michael Connolly or some James Elroy. And for some readers, that might put them off. I mean, reading James Elroy, you might think, well, I'm going to this terrible place that's full of corruption and murder and death and sadism and everything else. Um, Michael Connolly, because the goodies often win, the good guy often solves the crime. I mean, it gives you a sense of, of reassurance that even if bad things are happening in the world a sense of order will be restored at the end of the, of the, the criminal investigation. So it's never put me off really visiting anywhere. Um, but I do like going to cities like going to New York, and you can walk around in New York of uh, Lawrence Block, to give one example. And, 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 you know, you feel like you're walking in the footsteps of these, these wonderful fictional characters, and you're almost reprising their adventures by walking down the same streets that they walk down. And people can do it in Scotland. You can visit William McOvaney's or Denise Miner's Glasgow. You can visit Ian Rankin's Edinburgh or all the other Edinburgh's that exist that other writers are writing about. Um, I, and I just think it's fantastic. I do, I, I, I love it. I, lo- I love that sense that, you know, now the, the, the big thing in crime fiction now is is crime novels set in, in, on the Indian subcontinent. And so a lot of us are learning a lot about India's past and India's present from the crime fiction that's coming out of that country.
0: Well, is there anything that you'd recommend?
1: There's one writer who's not at all well-known in, in the UK called Anita Nair, N-A-I-R, and she sets her books in present-day India um, with a very engaging cop at the centre of them. And, you know, her her first book from memory is about um, cross-dressing and, 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 and people being murdered because they're cross-dressers. Uh, and so she's actually taken on very pertinent contemporary issues, um, and weaving them into a crime story. There, are, you know, she'll mention kids who c- come in by train from the countryside, little kids, preteens, and are picked up at the station or by by men who want to use them as drug runners or mules or whatever, or put them out to work on the streets begging and then giving the money to these men. Um, this stuff goes on in real life and she's flagging it up as an issue. So they're very they're very issues driven books and I really like them. So Anita Nair is someone who should should be better known in the UK and I don't even think she's got a UK publisher.
0: Cuz I was thinking about, you know, what you were saying about those playground books and a clockwork orange and and you know not being able to see certain films and that the sense of scarcity and being really excited and having that anticipation and it taking a little while to be able to get hold of the thing you want to read and you know maybe that's a great way to recreate that sort of look for these authors who you know deserve a wider audience and maybe don't have one here and that you know you've got to do that extra bit of work to track them down.
1: Yeah and I mean thanks to the internet that's easier than it used to be. Mm. I I remember when I was at university if I walked, there were were sort of stories, short stories written by Thomas Pynchon who was one of my favourite writers and they hadn't been collected into book form so I had to sort of scour America, write letters to people in America and say, look, can you see if you can find a copy of this magazine anywhere from 1961 that Thomas Pynchon had a short story published in and maybe photocopy it and send it to me. It was that kind of thing you had to do. Um, so you were becoming a detective yourself. But now with the internet, of course, you can just tap in contemporary Ghanaian crime fiction, contemporary Sri Lankan crime fiction, and immediately you'll get a list of names coming up, uh, and you can have a look at them and decide who you might want to read.
0: Yeah, that's how you you get to know other places. You know what are their what are they buying to read at the airport. It's not all. It can't all be lessons in chemistry the world
1: over. No, well, no. Um, <laughs> you know, to wave a flag for crime fiction uh, literature in translation, the UK um, were very lazy um, until fairly recently. We just wanted to read writers who were writing in English. Um, and crime fiction broke those barriers down. People like Stieg Larsson, um, Henning Mankell. It was the it was the crime writers from Scandinavia and elsewhere. We wanted to read their books. And pu- when publishers realised that these books could be Yo Nesbo, when they realised these books could be big sellers, they started to look for the next big Yo Nesbo or the next Henning Mankell. Um, and they started looking at different countries to see what, what, you know, we've done Scandinavia now, we've translated a lot of the writers from there, where have we not translated books from? And so we're starting to get a lot, we're starting to get a much wider types of books available to us um, that we couldn't have got a, a generation or two ago because we just weren't that interested in translating books. It was an expensive process and with plenty of English language writers, so why would we bother?
0: That's what you were saying before as well about the way trust in the police, I think certainly in the UK and the US, that that is diminishing and that's you know going to have an impact on crime writing. I suppose it's interesting as well the way that other countries and places feel about the people who are supposed to be protecting them. I mean, in a lot of
1: these, you know, in a lot of these um, countries, I think India is a good example. A lot of it is, you know, your, your uncle is a, is a senior cop, so they get you a job as a cop. You might be absolutely useless at it, but you get you, you go through the ranks quickly because you've got a family member. It's a, a lot of nepotism, a lot of um, scratching going on, a lot of money changing hands for positions of authority. Uh, and, you know, it's corruption. Uh, and crime fiction you know shows up, it says, "Look, this is actually going on. are Are you readers happy about the fact that you live in a country where this stuff can happen um, and I think books crime novels are starting to take on board things like black lives matter um and and cover ups in the Met the Metropolitan Police in London." Um, and officers that are, have for years been getting away with sexual assaults and other terrible crimes because their mates and the police were backing them up and covering up for them. This is all not only coming to light in the real world, but is being used by crime writers um, to make the point that we, the public, should be horrified by this, and what can we do about it? Um, so, yeah, I think, I think crime fiction, at its heart, is a, is a, is a political medium um uh, and that again attracted me in the early days the you know the fact that edinburgh was a city of great wealth and great poverty and had huge drug problem and an hiv problem in the 1980s i thought if i want to talk about these issues um the crime novel allows me to do it. a detective is the perfect character because a detective can move easily between the haves and have nots between the overworld and the underworld between the ceos and the politicians and the disenfranchised. One character, a detective, allows you to move between all these strata and talk about them
0: and talk them and have a reason to ask them a lot of questions.
1: Yeah, and those questions um, will have to be answered. You know, if you're a journalist, people don't need to answer your questions. If you're a cop, people mm-hmm. need to answer your questions.
0: I would love to ask you about because um, I know you know you have um, you've written for screen and as uh, books have been adapted in that your own relationship with reading has often been seeking out the stories because you wanted to see the the movie and, you know, you couldn't for whatever reason. Are there ever things that you've tried to kind of, to make work for screen that haven't worked out or ways that stories have evolved that have surprised you?
1: Oh, all the time. Um, I spent months with a friend of mine who's a screenwriter. We sat in an office and tried to get a film script done of Confessions of a Justified Sinner, a novel by James Hogg about a Scottish zealot serial killer. And and we thought we'd got something that worked, and off it went to Cannes, and, you know, the script went to Cannes, and we had a producer, etc., etc., And we just couldn't get the funding, we couldn't get it off the ground, so that was months and months wasted. The thing I've realised is that if I can either spend months and years that might be wasted trying to do screenplays and things that never get made. Or I can use that time to write novels, which almost certainly will get published. Um, so I've kind of fallen back on, on the novel again. But I do like stretching myself. And to do that, I, I sometimes do take on a stage play, for example. Um, and just Because it makes you think about narrative in a different way and makes you think yeah. about the presentation of character in a different way. And so when Amazon came to me f- uh, for 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 The Rise... Uh, I, you know they said look it 's going to have to be short it 's got to be read in one sitting and I thought I, you know i 've got this this idea that I had for a, for a film uh, about this high rise block in London and as a murder of a concierge and I just thought maybe that 's it. maybe this is a way to, to to make that story work and so that was a story that had been at the back of my mind that I thought I was going to use in one medium, but suddenly another medium presented itself um, and I was able to, to to get into it and it was so it was it was thrilling. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I've done opera librettos and I've done uh, song lyrics. Uh, Anything that makes me think about storytelling in a different way is good for the brain.
0: I think so, that it is just that, you know, reconfiguring and that angle change. You know, something that is a a short story or a shorter novel can be adapted really well. But anything very, very dense is a much trickier proposition. Um, I just saw... The stage play of a little life a novel i really really loved um i didn't enjoy the stage play at all. i mean enjoy is probably the wrong word for that book and that experience but um i was really really surprised by a lot of the creative decisions made in terms of the the parts of the book they chose to sort of to put on stage
1: yeah this is this is why on television a lot of the best crime shows in the history of television have been specifically written for the screen rather than adapted mm. from novels uh, the Sweeney and stuff like that, and uh, kojak, I mean you know Columbo whatever there 's lots of them uh, minder um, prime suspect uh, life on Mars these were not adapted these were written specifically for the screen, and in the past uh, and right now actually when when adaptation of my books has happened for the screen, um, often they just use the the bare bones of the plot because mm. the, the books are can be so dense that there's no way you can present it on screen without having 20 hours to tell the story and very few TV shows get 20 hours to tell a story. So they tend to cut it back to the maybe the main theme and maybe one thread of the plot um, and then rejig it so that it fits into 45 minutes or an hour uh, and it fits into a, a screen narrative that isn't going to confuse too many people. I mean, in my books, I've got a cast of 30, 40, 50, 60 people. Um, you can't always do that on screen without confusing the viewer. So I've been lucky in a way that I've worked with screenwriters who know what they're doing and are very good at taking the bare bones of the the story and and managing to make the theme work while compressing it.
0: Other than um, any books you've already mentioned, if we could guarantee that screen version would definitely get made, are there any... Books that you haven't written that you would love to adapt?
1: I don't think I'm the person to adapt to anything. I don't work well in a team. Uh, I, I, you know, I, the novelist gets to play God, and I like playing God. Um, I, you know, I've, I, nobody sees it until I'm happy with it, and when it's when I'm happy with it, usually it's in publishable form. When you're working on a screenplay, the director, the producer, the money people, your co-writers, the actors, everybody might want a say in it. You're a very small cog in a very big machine. Um, And the reason I became a novelist is I don't work well in a team. I'm just not a team player. Uh, It's why I can never be a cop, because cops (laughs) in the real world, unlike the mavericks that we have on on television and film and in books, they have to work well. They've got to be team players. Um, And they've got to get used to being a small cog in a very big machine. And they've got to get used to the fact that they may start an investigation but may not be around at the end of the investigation when justice is done and justice may not be done at all. So yeah, for all those reasons, I think I would be terrible at adapting to anything. But I'm very pleased that one of my favourite writers, Alistair Gray, is finally, finally getting his work adapted for the screen, and it's had a rave review at Cannes or Venice. I think it's a Venice Film Festival. Um, Poor Things, which is a novel of his that I would have said was unfilmable, uh, has been made into a film, and it's been made hugely successfully into a film. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Sadly, Alistair died a couple of years ago. See, he's not going to be around to see it. If any film could get made, I would love Alistair Gray's *Lanark*, the the great twentieth century Scottish novel, after Miss Jean Brodie. Um, I would love that to be made into a film, but again, it's probably unfilmable.
0: Well, you know now now it's starting. I didn't know that's um, that's really exciting. I don't think I've read any of Alistair Gray, but I've definitely um, seen. I think we've got *Lanark* in *The House somewhere, which I will definitely read now and hope that someone. Has the imagination and the ambition to make it. But I think that's so interesting about the. I think being a team player is the greatest lie on everyone's CV. The you know the first falsehood you'd say in a job interview, and I suppose you know another. The joy of crime fiction is that everyone gets to kind of indulge in that fantasy that they they could be. It's seeing a team most of the time working very very well and doing what they're set out to do with you know at any. When that doesn't work out, it's an essential part of the story.
1: Yeah, what the crime novel does is, if it's about a a cop, what it tends to try and do is say to you, look, there is a team here just just behind that door. There's a huge team working away, but we're just going to follow these one or two people, these one or two detectives. Um, And I'll persuade you, as an author, I will persuade you, the reader, that there's an awful lot of other stuff going on. But we are just going to focus on these one or two people, and they will be there at the beginning of the investigation, and they will be there at the end of the investigation unlike a real uh unlike a real um, criminal inquiry which can go on for months if not years uh so yeah, that's one of the kind of secrets of writing good crime fiction is to try and persuade you that there's an awful lot going on that we're just not going to show you
0: before we go um I have many questions <laughs> any questions about crime that I'd love to um ask you still could. Talk to you for hours about that but I would love to know about the books on your pile or anything that you're excited about reading or looking forward to making time for
1: uh, I've just finished reading John Niven's book Oh Brother about his brother um, uh, a troubled soul who committed suicide um, it's very moving very funny it's uh, John is a very funny writer and he can't help being funny so although it's a, a powerful and a dark story he does inject a lot of humor into it and it's a great Book. It's a real departure for him. He's known for his kind of scabrous, dark, satirical novels, uh, and this is a very personal book. And yesterday, I finished reading Jilly Cooper's new book um Tackle, which is published, I think, in November. um Which is about football. I'm a huge. People are going, to go, "What you? What? I'm a huge Jilly Cooper fan. I'm a fanboy."
0: I wasn't expecting you to say that, but I've just read Tackle and I had a fine old time. It Come on, Rupert, riot.
1: Rupert Campbell Black is back. He's bought a football team. They're in the lower leagues. He brings them to glory and everything else. Stuff happens. There's murder. There's intrigue. There's a lot of romping. Uh, it's every, a lot of puns. It's, a, it's everything you would expect from a great Jilly Cooper novel. And I think she's got As- the mojo back.
0: Thinking as well, when we were talking earlier, I think Jilly is the only writer in the world who can get away with the demise of beloved dogs.
1: Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they don't die violent deaths, but she's got horses that, that die, you know, and, and, uh, and dogs that die. I mean, she's a, she's a, she's a real animal person in real life. Um, and uh, I think that comes across in the books. So although, yes, death is, of course, a natural part of the cycle. Um, she's very good at writing about it because she feels it, she feels mm. the death of animals really personally.
0: Wasn't expecting that but I'm so delighted to hear it.
1: The other thing about Jilly is every time I say something nice about her in an interview she sends me a present. So
0: Oh yes so maybe um, make sure that she, she hears this <laughs> we'll both get a bit of Jilly mail. I'm going to cross my fingers for that. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Lovely, well it was lovely talking to you Daisy as well.
0: Huge thanks to Ian. The Rise is out on the 1st of November from Amazon Originals as an ebook and an audiobook. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and created by Dale Shaw and me, Daisy Buchanan. To see all the books Ian mentioned, go to slash booked and you can shop a selection on our page at bookshop.org. Find dozen followers on social media at Why Booked, and if you're feeling especially generous, we would hugely appreciate a five-star review. As well as helping us, you could be helping a new listener find the podcast and their new favourite book. But now I'll leave you with this from Deborah Levy. Be sure to enjoy language. Experiment with ways of talking. Be exuberant, even when you don't feel like it, because language can make your world a better place to live. See you next time.